The coronavirus is now in Canada, but are we prepared? And why isn't the mainstream media talking about the origin of this deadly virus? Could it be linked to China's biological warfare program? Plus, we'll talk about the conservative leadership race and what it means to be a conservative in 2020. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for joining this podcast. I'm going to do a quick pitch for our news website, tnc.news. You can keep up with all the breaking news. We have investigative reports, plus a couple of other podcasts. So tnc.news, stay up to date with everything happening in Canadian politics and more. I'm going to talk about the coronavirus today. It's kind of all over the news. Now, I typically kind of roll my eyes this kind of coverage because I do think that it's overblown, you know, uh, just a couple of cases so far. And basically, more people are going to be affected and killed, frankly, by the common flu this year and every year than these than these viruses. But this one's this one's a little different. It's now in Canada. It's all over the world. The origin, of course, is in Wuhan, China, and we're going to get to that a little later on. But first, there's been now two confirmed cases of the coronavirus, both in Toronto, a husband and wife who were on a plane coming from Wuhan province. Ontario's Ministry of Health has confirmed a second presumptive case of the coronavirus in Canada days after the first was confirmed at Sunnybrook Hospital, that's in Toronto. In a news release sent on Monday morning, the province says Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. David Williams, has confirmed that the wife of the first coronavirus patient in Canada has also tested positive for the virus at Ontario's Public Health Laboratory. Public health officials have said the woman's husband, a man in his 50s, had been showing mild signs since his flight from Hongshu, China to Toronto. They've since been reaching out to those aboard China Southern Airlines flight and those who sat within two meters of the man. Canada's chief public health officers has said she believes there will be more cases imported into Canada because of global flight patterns. But she notes there's little risk of becoming infected here. So basically, the only people that are affected are those at this point, the only people who have been affected are those who were on a flight from this region in China, the Uh, The illness originated in a very small part of China, which is why so many people are comparing it to the SARS outbreak back in 2002. That was the severe acute respiratory syndromes known as SARS, which originated also in China. It killed 44 people in Canada and about 800 worldwide. The Chinese government says it has ruled out SARS, bird flu and influenza as the cause of this current outbreak. Now, a lot of people are criticizing the Canadian government for not doing enough, not doing enough. My colleague, Anthony Fury, colleague both at True North and at the Toronto Sun, notes that flight tracker sites now show that at any given time, there are always about 12 planes in the air from China to Canada, the same sort of flight that our first infected case was on. Officials have so far said little about their monitoring and prevention strategies. Then he notes, again, interesting contrast, the UK has clinicians stationed at airports and is tracking and testing passengers connected to Wuhan, even without symptoms. This is proactive, whereas Canada doing none of this so far is being reactive. And Ezra Levant makes a very similar point. He notes that while Trudeau is taking a second vacation of 2020, other Western leaders are evacuating their citizens from Wuhan. Here's the US, here's France, Russia, Australia, and the UK, but not Canada. So it's an interesting point. What is Canada really doing to prepare for this? Should we really be doing a lot to prepare for this? Like I said, more people will be affected every year by the common flu. 
But, you know, this could just be the very beginning of what could become a very large and global problem, again, just given flight patterns. So a lot of people are concerned about that, especially if you have visited China or someone you work with or someone in your family or someone who you interact with frequently has visited China and might have been on a flight with someone else who was infected. Now, this is the angle that I'm a little bit more worried and concerned about, which is interesting because nobody else is covering it. Nobody else is covering it. I noticed this story in the Washington Times over the weekend. It says virus hit Wuhan has two laboratories linked to Chinese biological warfare program. So the deadly animal virus epidemic spreading globally may have originated in a Wuhan laboratory linked to China's covert biological weapons program, according to an Israeli biological warfare expert. Radio Free Asia this week rebroadcasted a local Wuhan television report from 2015 showing China's most advanced virus research laboratory, known as the Wuhan Institute for Virology, Radio Free Asia reported. The lab is the only declared site in China capable of working with deadly viruses. So Danny Shoham, who is a former Israeli military intelligence officer who has studied Chinese biological warfare, said the institute is linked to Beijing's covert biological weapons programs. This is a quote from Shohan. Certain laboratories in the institute have probably engaged in terms of research and development in Chinese biological weapons, at least collaterally, yet not as a principal facility of the Chinese biological warfare alignment, he told the Washington Times. Work on biological weapons is conducted as part of a dual civilian military research and is definitely covert, he said in an email. Mr. Shohan holds a doctorate in medical microbiology from 1970 to 1991. He was a senior analyst with the Israeli military intelligence and biological and chemical warfare in the Middle East and worldwide, holding the rank of lieutenant colonel. So that is a little bit concerning. I mean, we don't know anything and I'm not going to speculate, but I'm just saying that, you know, an expert who knows what he's talking about is linking this. We don't really know exactly what the origins are. Nobody in the media is talking about, but it is definitely worth knowing that China's covert biological weapons is centered in the exact same city where this virus was originating. I'll just leave it at that. I'm not going to speculate, but I think it's interesting. Worth noting, not sure why my colleagues in the mainstream media are completely ignoring that fact. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about the conservative leadership race because it's really, it's really kind of dismal at this point. There's not a lot of people running. Pierre Polyev, who many believed was the front runner, uh, very surprisingly announced last week that he is no longer considering running. He said that he wanted to spend more time with his family, which is a little bit of a cop-out in my experience. You knew going into it that you would not get to spend that much time with your family. So why would you announce that you're going to run and then like two weeks later say, okay, never mind, I don't want to make that sacrifice for my family. I think what Pierre Polyev did was scared off a lot of other potential people in the race who you know, decided not to run because they thought that he was going to run. And now that he's not running, they might be kind of scrambling left to say, okay, well, you know, somebody has to run. Who, who's going to be the sort of blue conservative in the race? Who's going to be the one that's pushing forward you know, more traditional conservative values or pushing for more fiscal restraint? I mean, Pierre Polyev was sort of the mantle of that. He was this sort of, I mean, he is this you know, very uh, strong fiscal conservative, someone who understands um, the cultural issues as well. And I'm really not sure when, when I look at the field right now and who's running, it's it's pretty it's pretty sad, you know. Rona Ambrose is out, as I said. Pierre Polyev is out. Brett Wilson's not running. Jean Charest is out. Uh, we know that Jess, Jason Kenney's not going to be running. Doug Ford is not going to be running. A lot of the really high-profile conservatives in this country are out, which really just leaves basically Peter McKay, Aaron O'Toole, 
and a bunch of people that no one has ever heard of. So this is really concerning news for the conservative party as well as sort of the conservative movement in Canada. You know, the fact that the person who becomes leader of this party may very well become prime minister. I mean, Justin Trudeau is vulnerable. He was reduced to a minority. The conservatives won the popular vote in the last election, which doesn't really mean anything other than just to say that more people cast their ballot for conservative than any other party. Uh, you know, you would think that running this party would be something that would attract a lot of talented people from not just the political realm, but other aspects of civil society, you know, business leaders, uh, community leaders, people who are conservatives in other levels of government, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, uh, people from tech, people from finance, lawyers. You would think that there would be so many people lining up to take this position. And the fact that there really isn't, and at this point, it's just Peter McKay as a front runner. This, this makes you consider there's so few people that are interested. It's not just because they know that the mainstream media is going to absolutely tear them apart, that there's going to be a microscope over every aspect of their personal life, and that it's, of course, it's going to be a tough, tough journey few years, uh, but you would think that the prize is so big. I think I think it says something uh, to the sort of state of conservatism in Canada right now that, that this position is so unattractive. I also think that a lot of the rules that we have put in place, not, not official rules, but just sort of like de facto rules, also prevent a lot of people from running. I mentioned this on a previous show, but the fact that just for instance, that the conservative leader in the last you know, two decades, it, it's sort of become a mandatory thing that they must speak French, that they must be fluently bilingual in both French and English, not just sort of have a basic working understanding of French, but be able to participate in high level debates. I think that makes a lot of people who would otherwise be very good candidates for this position not want to run, especially in the business world. You know, a lot of people who are interested in politics, people who become MPs, people who are lifelong politicos, uh, they take the time to learn French because it's in their best interest. But, you know, most people who have great leadership capacity, have great, uh, you know, ability to run institutions, you know, they're not really focused on learning French, especially if you're based in, you know, Toronto, Calgary, Vancouver, basically any city other than Montreal and Ottawa. Ottawa and Montreal, those two cities have a culture where the sort of well-educated, cream-of-the-crop people learn French, but the rest of the country just doesn't really have that. And I think that this weird rule that we've created that you must speak French it doesn't really make sense. And perhaps it's time that conservatives sort of move past that, especially given the performance that the conservative party has in Quebec. It's not like they're winning a lot of seats. It's not like a lot of people in Quebec are lining up to vote for this party. So why is there such an emphasis on trying to communicate to people who have basically have no interest in voting conservative. I had a column in The Sun on Sunday where I was pretty harsh against Andrew Scheer. You know, the more that I consider what he's done to the party and how he's left the party, I really think he has done a great disservice. I'll tell you what I'm talking about. Andrew Scheer really struggled during the election to articulate his own values, to describe his personal religious social conservative values in a way that sort of put the question uh, to bed, that put the, put the issue at ease in the minds of Canadians. Yes, the media were very unfair. They were sort of bullying him and they didn't let it go. But that's partially because of the way that Andrew Scheer treated the question. And I think by failing to really close that door and give Canadians the assurance that, that they needed, uh, it's, he's reopened the issue in, in a way that ha it hasn't been reopened uh, for decades, frankly. You know, the, is the divisive issues, um, the, the divisive social issues that conservatives really just don't want to talk about, that they want to avoid, mainly gay marriage, uh, but also to some extent, uh, your position on abortion. I think that these two issues under Stephen Harper, he sort of successfully said to the public, 
you know, rest assured, we're not going to talk about these issues. We know that they're divisive and Canadians don't really want to have a huge national conversation again. We kind of already did that in the 2000s. We don't need to do it again in, you know, 2018, 2019, 2020. Uh, whereas Andrew Scheer just failed to do that. And now he's sort of emboldened the craziest of the crazy to come out and, again, try to relitigate these issues. So uh, last week, last Wednesday, a prospective conservative leadership candidate named Richard Descari went on CTV with Evan Solomon. Now, this guy is basically an unheard of Quebecer who's never been elected to public office. I understand he used to be a Quebec separatist, and then at some point he came in to advise Stephen Harper. But he's not a sort of public conservative. He's not really in the game. Uh, most people have never heard of him. But the mainstream media love to promote these kind of fringe candidates to try to accuse all conservatives of holding these kind of views. So Descari basically he did what Andrew Scheer failed to do. He flat out said, yes, I'm a social conservative. I think that gay marriage is wrong. Not only that, he said that being gay is a choice. Um, and then he said that he would defund abortion. So he, he took the most sort of divisive issues that most conservatives want to avoid talking about, and he just put them right out there. Um, the media love this. This is what the mainstream media want. This is what the media, mainstream media dream about. They all dream about doing what Evan Solomon did. Evan Solomon made this candidate look like an absolute fool and like a bigot. What about same-sex marriage? My point of view is that marriage is exclusive to a man and a woman. And traditionally, it used to be uh, for religion, from religion point of view. And people are mixed up. When we talk to real people on the street, when we go across the country, we are hearing the same things. We are all mixed up. Our kids are mixed up. LGBTQ people are real people, too. I, I'm just trying to figure out your terms. Are they not real people? Uh, I think LGBTQ is a liberal term. I don't, uh, I don't talk about people th that way. I, I talk about uh, persons, and I think uh, we all need the full respects uh, for being a human being, simply. Oh, so, okay, so you, you, don't, you don't think that being uh, gay you don't think, what, do you think that's a choice or do you think it's biological? I think it's a choice. And this is the problem. This is the problem. Andrew Scheer sort of opened up the Pandora box of social conservatism, which makes other candidates more emboldened because the, the lesson that the mainstream media and talking heads in the media said about the election was basically that you can no longer be a social conservative and become prime minister. Andrew Scheer prove that point. You cannot have personal religious convictions. You can't be a Catholic, a practicing Catholic, and be prime minister. But for many conservatives, and I will say myself included in this package, I don't think that that's why Andrew Scheer lost. I don't think the mere fact that he was a social conservative is why he's not prime minister today. I think it was because of the way that he articulated his social conservative values, or more accurately, the way that he failed to articulate his values. He failed to explain to Canadians what it was that he believed and how that would differentiate from how he would govern that's why he lost. And so to many conservatives and many social conservatives, the, the idea would then become, well, if it was only about how Scheer communicated and not the actual values that he held, then maybe someone else can articulate them better. And I think that's what this individual is trying to do, just trying to say, yes, I have these values. I'm not going to be shy about it. I'm not going to be passive about it like Scheer was. I'm just going to put it right out there. And I think I can win on these issues. Well, no, I don't think that's a good idea. I, I'll say, I consider myself a social conservative and I'll tell you why. I believe in tradition. I think tradition is very important. I think that changes in our society should happen slowly, deliberately, um, cautiously, 
that we should really try to think things through before we just jump the gun and you know ad adhere to the latest fad or tradition because we don't really know uh, what the underlying uh, issues might be, these sort of unintended consequences of changing too quickly. And more importantly, I believe that families are the central institution of society, that a strong, strong families mean strong society and strong people. And so I think that that's sort of the origin of my beliefs. I also obviously believe in freedom, personal responsibility, and equal rights for everyone. And I think because of these values, I think that conservatives, even social conservatives like myself, should be for gay marriage. I mean, this is a conversation that happened like 20 years ago, so it's almost weird to be rehashing it, but I think there's some value in doing it. I think that social conservatives should be for gay marriage because we should want family and, and the, the traditions within family to extend to everyone. We shouldn't want to exclude someone because of an innate feature that they're born with or char characteristic. So we should want marriage for everyone. We should want, we should encourage marriage as a social institution and encourage people, whether they're gay or straight, to get married, to go down that path, to start families, have families, that that's the important thing in our society. And so, you know, this idea that we're going to all of a sudden try to turn back the page, try to say, no, uh, being gay isn't real and you shouldn't have marriage equality. This is the wrong approach. And I just cringe when I see interviews like that. I don't think that the conservative party should be promoting people with these views. You know, sure, there's room in the party for all views, all conservative views, and we can have those sort of debates. But having someone like this as a front runner or as a leadership candidate um, that gets invited on the big programs and gets humiliated by one of the most famous journalists in Canada, not a good look. And I do blame Andrew Scheer for that because I don't think that, I think that if, if Scheer had taken the, the approach that Stephen Harper had taken, which was, you know, these are my views, we're not going to legislate on this and he was firm, and he was forthright, and he was honest, and he was transparent, which were all issues that Andrew Scheer had problems with, we wouldn't be going down this path now where we're sort of scrambling and herding cats and saying, no, 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 conservatives don't actually think that uh, gay marriage sh is something that should be rolled back on. So like I said, I'm really hoping that an outsider candidate will come in. Right now, we just have a lineup of career establishment politicians, really insider type people, no one that's really exciting that has new views, outsider views, a different perspective. So I am holding out that someone new will join the race. Hopefully the barriers aren't too high and someone with, you know, not a lot of political experience, but has shown, you know, their capacity for leadership, uh, for managing large organizations. Someone out there will decide to throw their hat in the race and shake things up because I don't think that it's very good for the conservative party to just have a lineup of only career politicians. And to stay up to date on all things related to the conservative leadership race, check out tnc.news. We are writing reports. We have other podcasts that are focused on this and we're devoting more time and attention than anyone in the mainstream media. So tune in to tnc.news and to this podcast. We will be back on Wednesday. Thank you so much.